This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18plusbegambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. This is a game day podcast from TalkSport. Hello and welcome to the Game Day Podcast from TalkSport with me, Sam Matterface, the Assistant Editor of the Mirror, Darren Lewis, and TalkSport's football correspondent, Alex Crook. As the Lionesses warm up in style with another goal-laden second half. Kelly will across into the box and Jill Scott is arriving and goes in at the far post and scores a brilliant header. Yeah, England take on Austria next Wednesday as the Women's Euro 2022 kicks into gear. Everything you need is here on the Game Day Podcast and across the TalkSport network. Also today, robot refs are linesmen waving the white flag and the best news from the Premier League. All on the Game Day podcast from TalkSport. This is Game Day. Hello to Darren Lewis and to Alex Crook. I've missed you both. Uh, I'm in Zurich today and yesterday it was like 35 degrees and you couldn't go outside. It was so hot. Today it is raining and the mountains are clouded by big, heavy, thick, grey clouds. It looks a bit miserable outside. Uh, but how are you? OK? Yeah, really well. Uh, I've, I've missed you, but I have to say uh, Crook's been like Richarlison stepping in for Harry Kane. A little bit maverick, but very <laughs> efficient in front of goal. I'm far too smiley for that comparison. <laughs> yeah, well, Sam, Sam is more of the Richarlison demeanour than me. <laughs> you don't moan as much as Richarlison. Is that what you're trying to say? I Basically, beg to differ. Yeah. I beg to differ. If things don't go your way, you are very much toys out of your pram type character, aren't you? <laughs> well, you've been very busy doing the transfer stuff as well, haven't you? I mean, I know that you you messed up technically on the podcast, but apart from that, you know, you <laughs> made everyone sound like they were in a bath or something. But apart from that, you've had a couple of busy weeks. Transfer-wise, it's mental. First uh, of July only as we record this podcast, and it feels like we've already had an entire summer's worth of activity. I think this is going to be the biggest and best transfer window of all time, certainly in terms of money spent. And you look at some of the signings as well. We're recording this minutes after Tottenham formally announced Richarlison, uh, who we just mentioned on a five-year contract. I'm fascinated to see how that signing works out. You've got Chelsea going all guns blazing uh, for a number of players. Manchester United finally getting busy. Arsenal have done business. Liverpool, Man City, the list goes on really. West Ham are probably going to pay £30 million for a striker. What do you think this is a symptom of, Darren? Is this the fact that actually last year it felt a little bit like Manchester City and Liverpool were getting away from the pack and everybody knows that they've added in big areas, so they've got to react? Is that is that sort of the reason for it? I think it's twofold. I think that we're seeing examples of the commercial financial power of the Premier League. The TV deal means that clubs can really uh, ramp up their spending, but they're spending it even more wisely than they have done in the past. I also think at the top of the Premier League, it's a sign that there is an arms race going on. City are ripping up their side. Liverpool are doing the same. Conte doesn't want to compete for a top four place. He wants to have a shot at the title, but to do that, he's got to bring in quality. And lots of people can't understand why they're paying £50 million for a Charleston to sit on the bench. But he either won't sit on the bench or he will get game time in weeks when Tottenham have got Champions League commitments. So I think that it's a wonderful signing for Spurs and a sign that we're, we're in an arms race at the top of the Premier League that is nowhere near finished yet because Chelsea will get involved before they go on their preseason trip to America. 
Okay. Um, well, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, transfers and details involving Chelsea in the not too distant future. Uh, but first of all, let's get to the Lionesses. Carnival atmosphere here for the summer. How appropriate in festival season. What a whipped in high underneath the crossbar. And it is headed in by Ericsson. An opportunity to round the goalkeeper and it's in from Bob Marty. Cuts back onto her right foot oh. and finds the net. Vivian Miedemar starting as she means to go on. This time is Furness and it's 2-0. Brilliant in the air. Northern Ireland double their lead and guess who? Spitzer I think is going to cross to take the corner right foot it towards Martins at the near post. Flick header into the corner and in. And the Netherlands lead here. It'll break for Lasada who sets herself and she scores. Vicky Lasada. She gets to the dead ball line. Hooks up the cross and the header is in from Harder. Here's a cross on the right hand side. Daly towards the far post and the header is in by Alicia Russo. England finally have their breakthrough. 6th of July, the date for your diary. England against Austria gets Euro 2022 underway. Well, last night in front of a record crowd in Zurich, England beat Switzerland 4-0 with another very good performance in their final warm-up game. They've won their last six matches by an aggregate scoreline of 30 goals to one. Uh, and they haven't just played uh, a minnow opposition. They've played teams that will be at the European Championship. Switzerland are going to be at the European Championship. They've beaten the reigning world, uh, European uh, champions in uh, the Netherlands 5-1 in the last week as well. They are in great shape, Darren, ahead of the European Championships. Yeah, they are. And, and, you know, it's quite funny because if, if people start to talk about them being serious contenders, everyone says you're getting carried away, but you've just read out the stats that suggest that we should have every, every reason to be optimistic and the calibre of the opposition. We should have every reason to be confident about their chances. Now we just have to find out whether that translates into performances at the tournament itself, because as we know, even with the men's game, as well as the women's game, they do well beforehand. They beat the opposition with something in hand and then they get to the big stage and it all goes horribly wrong. I hope that's not the case because this team looks good and their head coach is a winner. Ah, absolutely. And someone who has got uh, tactical nows in abundance. And, and one of the things that England do have as well is depth, as we've seen, I think, in these warm-up games, competition for places as well. Something I think the girls actually, from what they've said, rather enjoy. There was a bit of a debate about the number nine position ahead of last night because Ellen White's been out with COVID. She's the record goal scorer for England. Uh, but it's not a Harry Kane situation. Alicia Russo of Manchester United and Beth England of Chelsea both featured last night and scored. Um, Leah Williamson played as a centre-back rather than in midfield. I asked Serena Vigman about whether or not this was the best position for her. Leanne Sanderson, who was with me last night, thought it was. It does reconfigure the defence slightly because it pushes Alex Greenwood, who's been brilliant for Manchester City all season, into left back. But Vigman is a manager that keeps her cards close to her chest. Tactically, she's very astute. And she has got a winning record to envy. 14 matches unbeaten in all competitions as you took over, Alex. Yeah, 84 goals scored, only three conceded, I think mm. I read this morning. So, I mean, that is an impressive record, to say the least. They couldn't be going into the tournament in better form. And I think Darren... Uh, has taken the words out of my mouth, really. They have a coach who's been there, got the T-shirt. She's won the European Championships uh, with the Netherlands. She's a World Cup runner-up as well. Obviously led England to glory uh, in the first ever running of the Arnold Clark Cups. So you have a coach who knows how to get over the winning line. I think what's been most impressive about these friendlies is the way she's utilised the squad. Everybody has played their part. What can possibly go wrong now? England, one of the favourites for the competition on home soil. <laughs> Well, they do face stiff competition from the likes of Spain, Germany, Sweden, France, the Netherlands, who they've just beaten. Norway, actually, I think will be their toughest group game. Austria might be tighter than people expect. They actually met last year. I think England won't beat them by a goal to nil. They'll have to manage the expectation and the atmosphere surrounding the team as well. Emma Hayes saying this week, there's a psychological challenge to being host, Darren. Yeah, there is, uh, because there is so much more pressure on you. I also would add to that, <laughs> big tournaments now are event TV. Uh, and by that, it's not just about watching it. It's about commentary in real time, not just from the pundits, but the public as well. We all know, we've talked during the regular season about how players straight away after matches go on their phones, they get assessed in real time by the public. They get a flavour of how they played, whether it's good, whether it's bad. 
And I think that adds, a, uh, that gives an added dimension to the pressure that is on these players. I spoke to Leanne, she did a turn for us for kickoff on Thursday night and she was saying exactly the same thing. Now we're going to find out who can really step up to the added pressure that surrounds being at a major tournament for England. I think they all can. I think they've all shown their quality and their consistency. But as I say, this is a really, really big test. Can they live up to it? I thought, one of the things that really stuck out for me during the course of this warm-up game period is the use of the substitutes. And I think that sort of adds to uh, the the narrative that Serena Wiegmann is an elite coach. I know that Crook doesn't really like to uh, support an England coach very often, but um, she, she's been brilliant in terms of bringing the right players in at the right time and changing the, the, the way of the game. Chloe Kelly came off the bench last night, was absolutely terrific. She was riveting to watch the way she wriggled through very tight gaps, created opportunities for the team. Alicia Russo obviously is, is a player who we expect to be used off the bench, but started last night, did very well as the, the, the point lead in the attack for England. And then you've got players that also came off the bench last night and made a, a huge difference. Ella Toon, who I thought was terrific in midfield, came in, really added a little bit of dynamism to a midfield which had gone a little bit stale over the course of the game. The heat was ridiculous yesterday, so that had sapped a little bit of energy. And, and, and those options really make England contenders. I think what Emma Hayes said yesterday about if England go one or two goals down after 15 minutes against a team like Germany or someone who's very good, is the environment prepared for a reaction of a packed quarterfinal crowd suddenly going absolutely silent because that's not something that in women's football they experience very often. That's something that Emma Hayes came up with yesterday. And actually, that is a key point, isn't it? Because under Serena Wiegmann, they haven't really had to suffer very much. No, I think that Holland game or the, the game against the Netherlands, I should say, was the first time they'd had to come from behind, yeah. but they came from behind pretty emphatically. So I think that will um, serve them in good stead. But it's a really important point that yourself and Emma Hayes make about the uh, the squad depth and the use of substitutions. It's so important in, in modern football. And uh, your little barb there about my relationship with Gareth Southgate didn't go unnoticed. But one of my criticisms of him has been that he isn't reactive enough. Uh, from the bench in big game situations. I don't think you can necessarily say that um, about the England women's team. I think uh, she's proved, Serena Wiegmann, that she has the tactical now, the tactical acumen um, to make those game-changing in-game decisions. I, I'm very confident. Can I ask you both? Um, you, you're both reeling off lots of names, lots of game-changers, people who have been consistent. Who is, for both of you, who is the name that you think everyone will be talking about, the household name that will establish themselves by the end of this tournament, win or lose for England? Lauren Hemp, um, maybe Frank Kirby or Chloe Kelly, I think. I just think that Chloe Kelly um, has got a really good story in the fact that she was out with an ACL injury. She was away from the game for nine months, was playing particularly well prior to that. She's young, incredibly gifted, brilliant feet, dazzling, almost in a sort of Jack Grealish type mode, uh, creates great opportunities. Lauren Hemp is a record breaker already. This is the fourth time she's won the Young PFA Player of the Year this year. She is an absolute superstar at Manchester City. She hasn't really translated that in an England shirt as much yet on the on the world stage. So we haven't seen that that, that sort of dazzling ability that we see week in, week out at WSL on the international stage. Maybe that's because she hasn't had the opportunities yet, but I think this tournament gives her that platform to do that. And I think she'll probably start. And Fran Kirby, another one with a great backstory, who obviously is a world-class player on a day, maybe one of the best players on the planet when, when she's hitting top form. She's had such a long period out with fatigue and chronic illness that she's only played a handful of minutes and all of those minutes have come in this warm-up period for England. So the idea that she can get herself back to fitness, playing a major tournament for England without playing anything for Chelsea since February, would be some story if she ended up being a, a match winner. She hasn't really performed at major tournaments since 2015. So this would be a great opportunity for her to do that again. I think Ella Toon uh, will have a role to play probably off the bench, as, as Sam said, but I think uh, we could be talking a lot about her after the tournament. I'm still a big fan of Lucy Bronze as well. I think she's a, a fantastic player. She's got that experience. There's a lot of experience, actually, um, running through this England side, so I'm really looking forward to seeing her play again as well. 
Yeah, she should be back for the opener as well because um, she's had uh, an illness. She's not COVID, apparently. She's tested negative for COVID, but she's been away from the uh, the, um, the the camp because of a, a slight illness. She's an interesting character, Lucy Bronze, isn't she? Because at one stage, she, you know, she highly talked about as one of the best players in the world, Ballon d'Or winner. Um, but um, since she's gone back to Manchester City, it hasn't quite worked out for her as well. So I think she needs to have a really strong tournament. She's just signed for Barcelona. Um, she's obviously a big name in women's football, but um, you know she's 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 been out of uh, the uh, the limelight for a little while. Maybe it is time that she uh, she shone once again. Um, do you think the country started to pull for them more than usual, Darren? Yes, absolutely. They are commanding more column inches in the national newspapers. We're seeing more of them in the broadcast media as well, and. Even people with a passing interest in a women's game are starting to kind of get a sense of the excitement that surrounds this tournament and the Lionesses. Uh, I, you know, it's funny. I remember doing a sports bar with Jason Cundy after one match uh, after last tournament, and we had more calls about the Lionesses than any other subject, even though there had been transfers on that day. And I expect it to be a very similar situation because you know one of the interesting things intriguing things about that the growing impact of the women's game is that those people who work in and around it are, are insistent that they want to be judged as harshly as the men's game mm. and we all know that everybody judges football the men's game very very harshly indeed and I, and that, I welcome that I think it should be the case that people you know get as angry you know we're way way past the you know the old patronizing kind of oh they did all right we're qualifying um do you know what I mean the pats on the head type thing these are serious players playing at the elite level and uh, yeah I, I I expect the debate that the the joys and the frustrations to be as intense as we've ever seen and yeah I'm really looking forward to the whole thing kicking off. It was interesting yesterday, actually, glancing around the press room, you know, being part of the press back um, with England. It's, it's quite good. I was at uh, 2019 when they uh, went to the uh, semi-finals against the USA. I was there in 2017 and uh, I was uh, an onlooker in 2015 uh, when they uh, got to the bronze medal match and won the bronze medal against uh, uh, in um, Canada, which was a brilliant experience for a lot of the players that still form the, the core part of this group. But the expansion of the press pack all the way along has been quite interesting to mm. see, really. And we have a and we have had for many years now uh, an England women's um, media WhatsApp group, right? And the number of people that were in it at the beginning, and the number of people that are in it now, there's about 150 <laughs> people in it now. It's you know, it's crazy. It's gone through the roof, which is great. And you know, you're right about these are big events now. This is going to be on terrestrial television, and the fact that it's on terrestrial television means it is one of those moments of the year but that unites event TV, yeah, yeah, that unites the, the the country, and people will watch it. There'll be a lot of young kids. Women's football is so much more accessible than elite men's football in the fact that last night, prime example, I was standing uh, trying to get down to do the interviews. You cannot get through the kids to get to the front row, to get past the guards, to get into the the sort of inner sanctum of the, the stadium to do your interviews because there's so many people looking for autographs and the players are brilliant. They all come out afterwards and they all talk to the fans and sign things and get close to them. And, and there's a real bond between the supporters. So uh, I hope that continues. Can I just well. say very, very quickly though, I think... And I feel quite strongly about this. I think that they've missed a trick putting the game, st staging the games as late as they are. I mean, as you've been saying, the Eight audience for this, yeah, yeah. you've got to be putting games on where kids can watch. You are trying to attract a new generation of people. You're, you're, you've got kids who want to see their superstars, you know, young girls who want to be inspired. Why are you staging games as late as you are? Stage them earlier allow parents to enable their kids to be able to see the stars, be inspired, buy into a tournament. I, I, honestly, I really do think you have missed the trick staging them as late as they it, are. It is strange, isn't it? Because it is, um, obviously, because of our geographical position in the world, we are the, the, the earliest time zone in Europe, right? So, you know, if we play at eight o'clock, it's 10 o'clock in uh, the far reaches of uh, Eastern Europe. But if you stage, you could quite easily stage it at seven o'clock, couldn't you? And that would be a more palatable time. Easily, even if you know you allow the kids to see one half before they go to bed, or 
you know, I, I just feel that we are still trying, despite the strides that the women's game has taken, we are still trying to embed it in the global consciousness, certainly in the, the national consciousness. And if you're going to do that, you have got to make the game accessible to everybody, maybe not just us. Eight o'clock is the perfect TV audience time. Maybe, maybe they, that's why they've put it there. Um, I would imagine, though, that most of the kids will be quite happy waking up and putting the highlights on YouTube the next morning. Mm. <laughs> that's how kids tend to digest their football yeah I think they'll be more likely to be watching dad v girls or the norris nuts or rather you know when they grab their phones they'll have forgotten whereas if it's there if it's on in the living room and even if they watch 10 or 12 minutes and that could be enough to captivate them mm. I, I think that sometimes we take that audience for granted and that's a little bit of the reason why the women's game for all the work that's been done in and around it even by people like yourselves who have you know, really worked hard to promote it. it. It still doesn't have the audience. It could have, because sometimes we take that audience for granted where the, when there is still work to be done to attract it and that new generation. It, it does help, I think, that uh, Ed Sheeran uh, puts on a Lionesses jersey at one of his concerts on uh, on the weekend and uh, rather uh, celebrated the, the prospect of what's upcoming um, when he was on stage at Wembley. Um, and of course, the, if, if, if you are a kid and you're listening to this and your mum and dad send you to bed right early, take your phone with you, <laughs> get it under the pillow, get the TalkSport app, because every single England game is live on TalkSport and you can hear every single kick of the action. So if you want to be addicted, don't tell your mum and dad. Just hide the phone underneath. No, the there, are, there are mums and dads across the country around about mid-July who'll be going, Sam who? Yeah. Who, who anyway. told you to do that? Who's Sam Nativer? <laughs> is that TalkSport? Is that, that idiot who last year told you to take a day off school and now he's telling you that you can take your phone up to bed and listen to the live football matches. That's right, you can. Uh, all the England games sold out. Uh, you can hear every single one of them on TalkSport. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18+, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Okay, it's transfer time. And who should we speak to? No, do you know what, Darren? I had the, the best tweet ever uh, the other week. Right? Uh, so I put up a picture of Alex Crook wearing what can only be described as a shirt that looks like a knockoff Louis Vuitton handbag. Um, he's wearing it today. It's an absolutely terrible shirt. I don't know where he's got it from, but he seems to think it looks stylish. It doesn't. It looks like It does look like a fake... Louis Vuitton handbag. So I, I, I posed this question to the, uh, to the social media uh, army and asked them whether or not they thought to, it was a nice, wonderful jersey or a knockoff Louis Vuitton handbag. The results were outstanding. 
89%, I think, went for the Louis Vuitton handbag. Um, but one tweet... It was a leading question. One tweet, which, which absolutely floored me, uh, was the person who said, oh, you're a knockoff handbag for a knockoff football reporter. Um, <laughs> and, and with that in mind, what's the latest on the transfers? Because Chelsea are in their negotiations for Delict, Sterling and Rafinha. Uh, there's just- a bit of an... Bit of could, an I just, going could, on I, could I just show a little bit of solidarity with you, Crook? Because when you and I used to be young reporters on the South Coast... <laughs> Never at the uh, same what, time. You were always what, the older guy. I, I, well, well... <laughs> <laughs> but I must confess, but don't worry, Sam. I'll be back at you in a second. I'm trying to keep my train of thought here. Um, and I, I always remember writing, um, as, as we both know, in those days, if you wrote something positive about Portsmouth, the Southampton fans believed you're a Portsmouth fan. If you wrote something positive about Southampton, the Portsmouth fans thought you're a Southampton. And I remember doing that ahead of a derby between the two and the Portsmouth fans. Obviously, in those days, I was carrying a little bit more condition than I am at the moment. But they, um, they, a few, a small section of them were chanting, he's fat, he's right, he's round. He's fat, he's round, his writing's worth a pound. Very, very unfair. Which is which wow. is good actually, because usually the paper's only about forty pence. So well, that's why I, I did want to price. point that out to them at the time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Chelsea in negotiations for Delict, Sterling, Rafinha, and uh, they're, they're sort of there's a changing of the guard there at Chelsea, isn't there? But uh, do they all want to come? Um, well, Rafinha is a really interesting one um, because we know that his heart really is set on Barcelona. Personal terms. Uh, agreed with them already. They were agreed a long time ago, but at the moment, Barcelona, uh, due to their financial situation, just can't match the money that Chelsea have put down the table in excess of £55 million. Even once they've sold Frankie de Jong to Manchester United, I've been saying for two weeks, this one is inching closer, inching closer. I still believe it's inching closer and de Jong will be a Manchester United player, but I think there's a, a terms under the financial um, restrictions that have been placed on Barcelona. They can only spend 25% of the fee. So if they get £60 million, for example, up front for De Jong, that clearly still isn't enough um, to sign Rafinha. So I think he will end up at Chelsea. um, But Darren, at the moment, it looks like he might reluctantly end up at Chelsea. Yeah, I I do have a a few concerns about Chelsea. Um, Listen, they've confounded us many times and I wouldn't bet against them confounding us again but I do think that that big changing of the guard on and off the pitch does suggest to me that this will be a watching brief season rather than one of those seasons we'd become used to under Roman Abramovich where had they failed by their high standards in the previous season they'd bounce back all guns blazing you know Todd Bowley taking over for Marina from Bruce Buck from Petr Cech you look at some of the quality that's left the club you know Rudiger a fast, dominant centre-half gone to Real Madrid on a free transfer. Uh, Andreas Christensen gone. Um, County getting older. Um, three, two of the three now forward players, Sterling and Rafinha, you, we expect uh, either side of um, Kai Havertz. But at the back, will they be as dominant as they have been in the past when defensively they've been so strong? I'm not so sure. Um so I do have a lot of concerns all round, regardless of who they bring in. How are they going to gel? It does look like a season of transition for Chelsea. And a lot of that inspired by the fact that they appear to have got their recruitment wrong over the long term, really. I mean, Marina Granaskaya has done very good at negotiating great fees, huge, huge fees for players going out. But they've also paid a huge amount of money for players coming in. And sometimes that's because I'm sure it's to do with the whims of an owner who said, I want that player and go and get that player at any cost and whatever. Uh, But ultimately, if you look at Chelsea's incomings and outgoings over the last 10 years, there are some serious failures of recruitment. And that is... It's got to be down to the fact that there hasn't been an overall sporting director, someone who is, you know, a Michael Edwards type figure, someone who's had that that energy to be able to sit down and recruit properly and strategically for a manager or a coach or for a group. Um, You know, the midfield was a problem. I said it in September. The midfield was a problem last season, the whole season, because the blend was never right. And there's not even been one iota of chatter 
about uh, someone coming in in that area, apart from the odd Declan Rice, Declan Rice chat, which isn't going to happen, by the way. There's, mm. there's just no way that he's going to move on during this window because he's got a contract till the end of the universe. So there's no need for West Ham to sell him. Um, but they do need, they need someone strategically to come in and plan the recruitment coming forward. And as much as I, I'm sure that Te- Todd Bowley has got a wealth of experience of sports management in his role at uh, the LA Dodgers and beyond. And he's got obviously a wealth of business experience. He has never been a soccer football director. Um, and the idea that he can come in and negotiate six or seven transfers, because let's be honest, Chelsea needs six or seven transfers if they want to be competitive next year. Um, and, you know, get that over the line. If he does that, amazing, miracle work, fantastic. But I think the key appointment now really is to the backroom team, the, the team off the field, the boardroom, the, the, the hierarchy needs to be sorted out. because it's Would been you a take Michael Emanalo back? Um, I think they need a sporting director. And if Michael Emanalo is the is, is the man that they identify as someone who can do that, then yeah, I think I, I remember Michael being really frustrated, really frustrated when he was the sporting director at Chelsea because he didn't get the sort of support from above and, bo- and, and below actually that he needed. I think he clashed a little bit with uh, uh, Jose Mourinho in particular. Certainly, I mean, you look at his track record in terms of recruiting players. It wasn't it wasn't perfect either. So, look, I just think there needs to be a football person who, who, who's got the ability to recruit. I think maybe a younger, upcoming director of football might be helpful. I mean, I know they have tried to inquire about what's happening with uh, Michael Edwards. I'm not sure that under the terms of his departure from Liverpool, he could probably work for a Premier League club that quickly. But certainly something that they should look at. It's causing some problems as well in terms of outgoing players. They've got several young players that will probably leave the club either on loan or permanently. But I was speaking to an executive at another Premier League club and they were telling me it's been difficult to to really find anybody to negotiate with um, at Chelsea since the takeover, obviously since Marina Granoskaya uh, parted ways with the club. So I think actually we can talk about Sterling and... Ake and Delict, I think in both those cases, they're two defenders with questions to answer. Nathan Ake hasn't quite been the success at Manchester City that I expected him to be. And I don't think Delict has been the same player since joining Juventus. So they're, they're for me, not the not necessarily the finished article. Um, but I think the most important signing that Chelsea make this summer will be that sporting director because Todd Bowley is a fantastic businessman. Football is a completely different beast and there is a danger that he might be eaten alive. Yeah, we'll get more on Chelsea a little bit later on. Quickly on to Jed Spence going to Tottenham. How close are we to the, seeing that deal done? I think we're close. Uh, the fee that was touted to me earlier this week was £15 million, rising to 20 with add-ons. Uh, Tottenham not too far away from that valuation. And I- I'm intrigued by this as well, because uh, obviously Jed Spence got a lot of plaudits for what he did at Nottingham Forest last season. I know they were hoping to sign him permanently, but clearly uh, he only really has eyes for Tottenham. Um, but there are concerns about Jed Spence, uh, maybe his uh, attitude away um, from the pitch. And that's something that Antonio Conte, I'm sure, is aware of. And I guess with a strong arm manager like Antonio Conte, he will believe uh, he can get the better of that. But that was why Neil Warnock uh, severed his ties with Jed Spence. Trevor Sinclair was speaking on uh, breakfast on Friday saying, I don't understand why why Neil didn't give him a go. I need to ask him that question. But it, it was a bit more, I think, than a personality clash. But to his credit, Steve Cooper got the best out of Jed Spence and got him to knuckle down and concentrate on his football. Well, he certainly didn't have a problem at, at Nottingham Forest, did he? Um, and he's been pretty good for the England under-21s as well. So, I mean, he's only ever fallen out with Neil Warnock. So I don't think we can say that the, the kid's got an attitude problem. I think Antonio Conte, you know, I've mentioned it to you before, he made Victor Moses into a title-winning right wing-back at Chelsea, who never played that position before. This is a, a manager who can, who can turn water into wine occasionally. And I think, uh, you know, he's got a lot of talent, Jed Spence. And I think that he'll be a success at Tottenham. And I think Tottenham are going to be a success. I said mm. it before, I think they'll finish higher than Chelsea next year. I think they'll be the closest challengers because they've got a, a, a terrific, terrific manager. They've got now... Uh, what looks like the makings of a very, very, very good squad. You know? Welcome so. to my way of thinking, Samuel. I was saying this last season, and they, and my, how you laughed. When, when we, what fair, did we laugh you didn't at? Laugh. You did laugh. You didn't laugh. You didn't what laugh. Did we, well, the only thing that we uh, that we disagreed with was you said that Manchester United should sign Antonio Conte. Mm-hmm. We all thought that 
yeah, that in the real world, that that's right. But the only thing we disagreed with is that Manchester United would ever do that. And I said to you, I don't think they would. And they didn't. I, I think Man United are probably going to sink without, sink without, sink without a trace is too far, far too strong. Well, but I, I think I, I look at United now, I look at the players that are deciding that they're not an option, which is quite key. And I look at the strides <laughs> that Spurs are making. I have never seen in all the time I've covered Spurs, Daniel Levy break the bank in the manner that he's breaking the bank for Antonio Conte at the moment. And the players that Conti is getting in with the help of Fabio Paratici is allowing him to recraft that side into a really serious outfit with depth and with quality and defensive strength. And they are the reasons why I believe last season he would have been the right man. And I believe he's the right man now. And because he's not just recrafting the side, he's reshaping the club and the mentality is different because the club want to be challenged and United didn't want to be challenged. I they totally wanted agree to with you. I totally control. agree with you. And listen, we, 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 I, of all people, am very well versed in how good Antonio Conte can be. Um, look, he, he was brilliant at Chelsea, came in first season, won the league. That's it. Brilliant. And that, and that, and there's nothing you can say derogatory about that. You know, sometimes it's short term. He goes in, goes out again, having left a, a, a trophy laden trail behind him. But uh, look, Tottenham, Tottenham need that. Tottenham need that challenge. And uh, they're certainly pushing in the right direction. Crook? I was just going to say, Antonio Conte can have no excuses this season. You know, we, we can't see any of those kind of post-Burnley meltdowns that he gave you so famously last season because he has been given... <laughs> everything that he's wanted. And, and just to really uh, reiterate Darren's point, Richarlison isn't uh, a key signing. It's not an area really where they need to strengthen because Kane will play week in, week out. Some will play when he's fit. Kulusevski was brilliant in the second half of last season. In some ways, Richarlison is a luxury signing to, I disagree to bolster, with that. bolster the squad. I disagree with that. I think he's an absolutely necessity, a necessity for Tottenham Hotspur because they're going to play 60 games next season. That's their hope, right? Harry Kane... If you look at over the course of the last few years, how often has he performed at, the, at his very, very best or played 50 games in the season? He mm. doesn't do it. He always gets injured for a spell. There's always a period when he's out of the team. I you know? agree. And I think you might have misunderstood what I said, Crook, because I think for me, Richarlison has been bought. I, mean, I said it earlier on in the pod because right now, Harry Kane cannot sustain Champions League football on a Wednesday, game on a Saturday, Champions League the following week or League Cup or whatever it is. England they, games, He will World not Cup. start. Yeah, exactly. He will not be starting on a reg as regular a basis as he has been last season. Conti will manage his games. He's getting older. He, there is a need to make sure he can retain his fitness for the whole of the season rather than have that customary six weeks off as he tends to have because he's playing too much in games he doesn't need to play in. I think Richarlison will get a lot of game time. He will not be catching splinters in his bum on the bench. But this is the first time really that they've invested a significant amount of money for somebody in that forward area to come and compete with Harry Kane. So I think it is a game-changing signing. And I'm not sure if Antonio Conte was, was the man, wasn't the manager. I don't think Daniel Levy would have made that signing. Yeah, totally yeah, agree with you. I that's agree with that's that. true. I think I he, he's that. pushed them into doing it. Um, sometimes you do have to gamble. And David Moyes appears to be putting his eggs in the Armando Brogia basket. Martin Tyler came up to me the other week and said that he has spoken to Armando Brogia. Uh, and it's definitely Armando Brogia. And that's how he wants to be known, even though he's changed his mind three times every time we've spoken to him. But anyway, um, where will Brogia uh, be putting his eggs? I think it will be West Ham. I think they're probably encountering uh, some of the same problems that I've talked about in terms of trying to prize players away from Chelsea. I know Thomas Tuchel did want to have a look at Brozier in pre-season, but when you look at the fact they're going to sign uh, Raheem Sterling, they're looking at uh, Rafinha. I think there are other targets to come in and supplement the forward area as well. He just isn't going to get the game time uh, at Stamford Bridge. He actually had quite a disappointing end to the season at Southampton, hence the fact they've walked away uh, from a potential deal for him. They think he's uh, too expensive, both in terms of transfer fee and wages. West Ham don't believe that. What was interesting here is that the owners, I think, were pushing for um, Arnout Danjuma. We covered this on White and Jordan on Thursday. David Moyes vetoed that signing. He wants Broger. Uh, he wants Jesse Lingard as well. At the moment, he doesn't really fancy um, Arnout Danjuma. And that's not the first time there's been a bit of a clash of opinion between the West Ham owners and their manager. But he usually wins now, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And I think he's won this one. 
Mm. Uh, Southampton have released some NFTs to go with their uh, three new kits. Innovative. Uh, now they've adopted a money ball approach. A bit dated, but now basically means they're not going to spend any money again. Um, are you worried about them? Yes and no, because um, I think the money ball approach, uh, when Rasmus Ankerson, their sporting director, was at Brentford, served them pretty well. I, I like the signings that they're making. I think uh, Gavin Bazunu is going to be a top-class Premier League goalkeeper. I think he'll make mistakes this season. He made mistakes on loan at Portsmouth because he's a young player and that's the issue um, when you fill your team with youngsters. I think the key for Southampton is keeping hold of James Ward-Prowse. Darren will know that West Ham are big admirers, but they're not going to pay anywhere near the type of money it would take to price him away from St. Mary's. It was interesting when they released that new kit this week that James Ward-Prowse was the player right in the centre of the pitch. and centre. Um, and I think that's a, a pretty big uh, sign from Southampton warning off his potential suitors. I don't fear for Southampton. I think, again, it is clearly going to be a transitional season. I was told they could sign as many as 10 players. They're looking to sign young players. They can uh, move on for a hefty profit down the line. Ultimately, there will be worse teams and then they won't go down. I think we're looking at a bottom half finish, but um, it will be interesting to see how these young players develop under Ralph Hasenhutl. And it is just Ralph Hasenhutl still, isn't it? Have we got an assistant manager yet? Uh, they have you. you you're gonna, I'm going to need to find his name here, Sam, because he's not exactly household. Uh, but they completed the makeup of their um, coaching staff this week, actually. Google, 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 Google. Yeah, okay. No, South no, Coast I'm, correspondent. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just I'm looking quick, for the email. Yeah, to be fair. Quick, quick, quick. Um, so is. they've they've added Carl Martin, uh, former under 18s coach. Also spent a bit of time at Watford. Alex Clapham has joined from Notts County. The assistant um, is going to be uh, Ruben Seles. He's come in from Copenhagen, uh, somebody that Hasenhutl knows well. So it is a completely new backroom staff as well. Hasenhutl knows him well from Copenhagen, or is that Ankerson who knows him well? But both, I think. Ankerson was the driving force, but there is a relationship there between Hasenhutl um, and his new lieutenant as well. He had the final say. There is pressure on Ralph Hasenhutl, as there always is. When you lose your backroom staff and a whole new team come in, especially given the way that Southampton ended the season, they are going to have to start well. I was expecting a stronger backroom uh, team, I must admit. Someone mm. that we have heard of before, I think. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. Um but in some ways, I think that will give Ralph Hasenhutl more reassurance about his own future because there isn't really anybody there who's going to come in and take his job. Okay. Uh, Fulham are spending a lot of money as well. And um, where are we expecting Manchester United to go? Well, there's a curious story um, in this transfer game of snakes and ladders about Man United coming from the clouds to pinch Lissandro Martinez, the left-sided defender, central defender that looked set to head to Arsenal. Um, he'd be a good signing for Man United who do need to improve defensively. Obviously, the Ten Hag thing is well documented. Everybody knows all about that. Because uh, Lissandra Martinez was at Ajax, wasn't he? Yes, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, very good, solid, consistent player. The only thing I do think about him, it, he's another one of those players who... In recent years, we've seen so many of them at Ajax, Dutch players. They've been outstanding in a settled side where they've been allowed to make their mistakes and allowed to build their confidence. And then they all make big moves to big European clubs and struggle. And you mentioned De Ligt earlier. Uh, Van der Beek couldn't get a game at United, couldn't get a game at Everton. Um, there are one or two others as well. So the jury, in, in some respects, would be out on that. But you can see what Man United are trying to do. The fascinating thing is, as I said before, listen, they're going to sign this left back, uh, Terrell Malasia. Malasia. Um, another left back. I wonder what Alex Tellis thinks of that. And even uh, Luke Shaw. Um, well, they're both rubbish anyway. Well, <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I, listen, I think yeah, there are a lot of players works. at Man United who are victims of the culture of complacency. I talked all about that last season. Why, why don't we just swipe the, the board and just go, right, all 11 of you go and we'll just bring in the Ajax team. <laughs> yeah, well, quite, exactly. Even Everyone's, if they make mistakes, they can't be as bad as Man yeah, United. But, do, you know, do you know what, Darren? And you've, been, you've been in a sort of frontline role for longer than me, so you've probably been on the beat long enough to remember. I would imagine this, there was the same sort of scepticism when Arsene Wenger started to raise the French League 
for his Arsenal revolution. That didn't work out too badly. I think it makes a lot of sense for Eric Ten Hag because this is a short pre-season. We know the season starts earlier because of the World Cup. He has a certain way that he wants to play. Why not recruit players that you know will fit into your system rather than take a gamble? But there is a difference, and I'm, I'm not going to make a big point here. I'm going to just throw it back to you. There is a difference between the Arsene Wenger example you just gave and this one, which is that I've just named you specific players who have left Ajax over the last couple of years, who have been impressive at Ajax over the last few years, who have gone to bigger clubs and not and, and have been surrounded by quality, but they've just not managed to make that much of an impact. I haven't even mentioned Frankie de Jong, who, you know... <laughs> If I think he's right done price, better at Barcelona than he's Pete. done better, but at the right we, we, price, we, we, we to Barcelona would prepared, be prepared to allow him to leave. But that's, but that's a lot to do with their financial issues, isn't it? Well, you know, they've just sold off their their TV rights and marketing yes, yes. rights and, and shirt yes, rights for the next forty years or something. Just but to make I, a I think De Jong is a, is a top quality player. I think you'll Listen, prove it in the Premier League. I think he's a fine player. You're not understanding what I'm saying. I'm saying that. There are specific examples of players who have excelled in the Ajax team where they had all the conditions to do well, but when they've moved to other clubs, they've struggled a bit. And I'm not trying to, you know me, I'm far from insular. I just think that there are that the problems that exist at Man United, I just wonder if some players are not convinced that they are solved enough to go there. Even De Jong said, look, I'd rather stay at Barcelona. They're my dream club. So that was quite uh, a stupid thing to say for Dion because if he starts right. badly, that will be used to, as a stick to beat him with because he knew well, he was on his way out. He knew he was on his way out. Yeah, I, I, listen, I'm the most pessimistic, judgmental Manchester United fan in the world, okay? <laughs> I think they're going to have a better season than people expect. Um, really? It was interesting to see, actually, you say that, that you think Frankie Dion made a mistake saying that. Actually, I think what he was doing was hedging his bets. He was saying... Because there was, a, there is also a, a distinct possibility that he might have ended up at Barcelona still, if they couldn't have got the deal done. So he was just hedging his bets. He knows Barcelona. You talk about Manchester United using it as a stick to beat him with. Imagine if he stayed at Barcelona, having said he wanted to move to Manchester United. Exactly. That that crowd would have turned on him. So I think he was just being a little bit diplomatic. And I think the headline actually doesn't represent what he actually really said, which was more sort of like skating the lines of. I'm here, I'm already at a big club, I'm already at a dream club, et cetera, et cetera. You know, obviously he'll say the right things when he gets there uh, because, you know, that's what players do. They, they turn up now and say, I've always dreamed of playing for Manchester United. <laughs> Problem is, is getting players over the line to say that now is proving a little bit more difficult. Right, let's move on. Yesterday, whilst we were in Zurich here, just down the road from the FIFA Museum, Crook was sitting in a briefing that sounds distinctly Terminator 2. Uh, football is indeed on its way to robot refs, initially in the shape of semi-automated offsides. Now, from what I've seen, this seems incredibly expensive, but will it improve the speed of the decision-making around offside, and does it work? I think you're right to say it's incredibly expensive because uh, Pierre-Luigi Colina, former World Cup final referee, now in charge of uh, referees at FIFA, basically admitted that and said, look, football is... Um, Football has many different strands and basically only the elite level teams will be able to afford this technology. It basically revolves around a sensor in the match ball. It's been trialled at the World Club Cup. It's been trialled at Manchester City's training complex as well. And it will now be introduced at the World Cup in Qatar. There'll be a sensor uh, in the official match ball. There will be 12 uh, cameras on stadium roofs as well, tracking the movements uh, of players, body parts. Uh, the reason they're having a sensor in the ball is because that will be able to track exactly when a player makes contact uh, with the ball. And that information will be automatically relayed to the VAR room. And the idea, according to Kalina, is that it will both uh, improve the speed and accuracy of offside decision-making. He said it wasn't robot referees. He said that make, makes a good headline, but that isn't the case. But he compared it to to goal line technology. And I think he's right, apart from that high-profile incident involving Sheffield United and Aston Villa, goal line technology has been pretty faultless. And he is hoping that this new technology will mean it's the same for offside decisions. A sensor placed inside the ball, sending data to the VAR room at a rate of 500 times per second. Um, this apparently allows a more precise detection of the point at which a player kicks a ball. Um, I mean, is this is how important is this, how, how necessary is this? I mean, do you really need to to spend this much money to improve 
what is the very marginal decision making process, which I mean, okay, it takes a little bit longer when you're laying the lines down and mapping it and whatever. I mean, is that is is that that infuriating that we're going to spend huge amount, millions of pounds in order to to satisfy the sort of the television broadcasters need for it to reduce the decision making time? I think that we're we're heading towards football being an exact science, which will be so far away from. I remember Scott Parker saying a couple of seasons ago, the game that we all fell in love with. Well, it just uh, it appears to be extending the gap between the pro game and those sort of jump of a goalposts down the park uh, exactly. scenarios, which we all grew up loving. Exactly. The spontaneity, the organic nature of it, it it's going because, uh, and, the, and the irony is that no matter what technology you bring in, if you've still got people who are in charge of it, who just <laughs> either refuse to, accept the evidence of their own eyes or, or, or just back up bad decision-making, then it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And we've seen that in the last season, there are, have been situations, last couple of seasons, there've been situations at the technology where the technology says one thing and the people operating it decide another, leaving us all still talking about decisions that are made on the pitch. Yeah, I don't disagree there. I think the point Sam makes about the you know the rich getting richer and being able to use this technology and, and other leagues, even you know domestically, you know I can't see League One teams, for example, maybe even Championship teams being able to spend the sort of money it would take to use this technology. I think that's a very relevant point. Also, we bemoaned a lot of offside decisions where goals are being ruled out because a player's toenail is in an offside position. Well, that's only going to get worse with this technology because they're yeah. going to be so precise. I think we're going to get more infuriated with some of the goals that are ruled out. Mm. There'll be no margin for error now. No, exactly. And also, does it take the responsibility away from assistant referees? The LUIG says it isn't uh, robot assistants, but basically assistant referees know that they can afford to keep their flag down knowing that somebody in a VAR room is going to make the decision It'll on their make behalf. They're more hesitant, won't they? Especially on yeah. tight offside calls. They won't need to make a call about it because they're going to, well, well actually, there's somebody else who's going to, to review it and make sure it's okay. Um, look, uh, I mean, we'll see what happens at the World Cup and then go from there. Uh, the Champions League is coming back to the people, though, on the BBC. Highlights, a welcome return. Um, it means that uh, although BT will still show the majority of the live action, that there will be highlights on... Uh, BBC, which is is great because I think one of the real problems we've had over the course of the last sort of six years really is that there has been no access to highlights for the majority of the population. And I think that's been a real shame because we've had some wonderful, wonderful Champions League moments over the course of the last few years. And ultimately, you know, they've been under the radar. Look, BT have done a great job and obviously they've shown a lot of uh, great matches, but not everybody can afford to have BT Sport and ultimately we want as many people to see those great moments the the uh, the Tottenham Manchester City drama that we had in the Champions League a few years ago the Ajax uh, Tottenham drama in the semi-final we want that we want to see that um, we don't want it to be lost to just a, a few elite um supporters who can afford to pay the big bucks for the subscriptions. Amazon seems to be getting a few headlines as well. They're only showing the main game on a Tuesday, but it does end the BT monopoly on the Champions League. And and and, and ultimately, I think that's probably a good thing. It's probably the beginning of the end for BT, I'd have thought. I mean, you mentioned some of those amazing moments and the Champions League has been a fantastic competition over the last few years, but many people uh, haven't seen those moments, not live anyway, because we know subscription uh, to BT Sports Services is pretty low. I think at the moment when there's a cost of living crisis, um, people paying for sports subscriptions is a luxury, a luxury that many people can't afford. So I think it's actually really important um, that this comes back to terrestrial television. You mentioned Amazon have got one game already. I'm, I'm not sure how desperate BT are, given the low figures to keep hold of the Champions League and the expense it incurs. I think in the end, it will end up uh, with another broadcaster. Well, you say that. I, I actually think you, you said the beginning of the end for BT Sport. I think the end has already come, hasn't it? Because they've been bought by Discovery and eventually they will merge into one significant brand with the Eurosport. And I think they'll end up swallowing all of those rights together. So actually, I think they've already really moved away from BT Sport. It will, it will end up being a new a new brand of uh, a broadcaster, which takes on these rights, I think when it comes uh, around in the not too distant future, but listen, it's, I don't know how they've done it because I know 
from my own experiences in the television industry that the BBC trying to get the Champions League is something that's been a goal for 20 plus years and they've never been able to get it over the line because of the fact that they uh, the sponsorship is so heavy surrounding the Champions League. So it's very difficult for them to put that on. However, I don't know what they're going to do to mitigate that, but looks like that they've got it over the line. So uh, look, it's it's a welcome return to everybody's eyes that we can access more Champions League content because the Champions League, let's be, let's be completely honest about it, it is the best football in the world. It is brilliant. Uh, Chelsea's new owners have commissioned an investigation into accusations of a toxic culture of bullying within their marketing team after it emerged that the former head of the club's television channel, took his own life. The club confirmed that they had appointed an external review team following the revelation that Richard Bignall had killed himself at the age of 44 in January and that a coroner's report had been found, had found that he'd been deeply troubled by anxiety, depression and despair following the loss of his job. The New York Times did a huge article on this and said that uh, Richard who worked at Chelsea for 18 years had been abruptly sacked in September a day after returning from more than a year of medical leave. Now, I have to say um, that I think an investigation here is imperative. I'm not talking about some wishy-washy, under-the-carpet PR job. I'm, I'm pleased that it's finally come out this because Richard is someone that I knew, I worked with for a number of years, whose company I enjoyed and whose death came as a huge, huge shock. The situation is absolutely heartbreaking for his family and for anyone who knew him. Jason Cundy, Scott, Minto, Jody Morris and I have all talked about this privately for a long time now. And I think that as much as we all get football, media, it's a ruthless business. The way you manage your people has consequences. Now, you know, I'm not being soft or whatever. There's a lot of people who find themselves in these management positions or take over these departments in what you would call so-called positions of power who think that it's macho or clever to wield the axe or make significant changes without thoughts of consequence or knock-on effects of the individuals involved. It's not a game. It is people's lives. The culture needs addressing. When you make big decisions about the, the end of someone's employment, it needs to be done in a sensible and regulated way. And look, I don't know what happened or all the answers of what happened at Chelsea but I know what happened in the end and that can never, ever, ever be allowed to happen because some of us have lost a friend, some of us have lost a colleague and two kids have lost their father and that should never, ever be the case because someone has lost their job, especially someone who'd done such a fantastic job in basically making Chelsea TV over the course of nearly 20 years. Can I just add to that, Sam? You know, because you used you kind of qualified it and said you're not being soft. I don't think there's anything soft about us all wanting to be able to work in a culture of respect and um, a culture of sensitivity. Um, and this is very clearly a deeply sensitive subject. Um, but we talk very often on here. We all have jobs to do. The people listening to us all have jobs to do. And we talk very often about wanting to create conditions for people to do their job in an environment of understanding and sensitivity. And I will never, ever make any apology for that. And I don't think you should too. And I just hope anyone listening to this, if they're affected by any of the content of this particular aspect of the podcast, you know, there are places where you can get help. There are people that you can speak to. Um, so that you never find yourself in the kind of difficult situation that so many people, including Richard, find themselves at the moment. Yeah, totally agree with you. Yeah, there's not much I could add to what you've already said, Sam. Obviously, you, you told me about this situation a while ago. It, it, it took some time due to its sensitive nature to get into the public domain. I think it's correct that uh, Chelsea have appointed an external review team. Um, I hope whatever their findings are um, will give Richard's family and, and friends a little bit of solace. Um, at, you know, it's very difficult to imagine how that would happen. Very difficult to imagine how a, a football club, an institution as big as Chelsea can allow a situation um, to get quite so toxic, um, to, to use a word in the, in the original New York Times article. It's a very yeah. sad situation for I, all I wonder whether or not actually that, um, you know, there was a few eyebrows raised last week about the complete change of the, the boardroom makeup and the, the management structure at Chelsea. And I wonder whether or not 
it is a coincidence mm. that this story has come out very quickly after that and whether or not Todd Bowley and his team just decided, look, we've got to make sure that we've, we're starting again here right from the very beginning. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, there, if, that was, if that was part of the motivation amongst the loads of other things that have happened as well. I'm not suggesting for one minute that any of the, those who have been removed from their positions have uh, had a role in this situation. But certainly, you know, as a chairman and chief executive of a club, then they, they were obviously, ultimately, they are responsible for what happens inside their, their business. It uh, happened on their watch. Exactly. So it's, it is something that uh, I think does need further investigation. Look, um, we are going to be back next week after the first game of the European Championships. Um, there is, I think, Flo Lloyd Hughes is doing a big preview to the uh, Austria game on uh, Monday for us, which is great. Um, so uh, we'll be back next uh, Thursday morning, I think, when we look back at uh, England against Austria and what we hope will be a winning start to the Euros. Remember, all the games of the Euros are live on TalkSport and we look forward to bringing them to you. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.